Hello, and welcome to another episode of Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations of Pedagogy. I am Catherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as always, to be joined by Lauren Malone. Hi, everyone. So I'm really excited about today's topic because the the origin story for this podcast and the reason it's called Playing in the Sandbox is because one, the collaborative has a sandbox, but, but two, because I, I really believe sort of in my core that what separates good professors from great professors is the idea of play. Um, and play can and is often separated from games. It's more about being like playful, curious, and open to failure and things like that. But it can also mean what we're going to talk about today, which is really explicitly game-based learning. So I know much, much, much less than Lauren does. I also have less experience with game-based learning um, because she's done it in really big ways as well as small ways, and I've only ever done it in small ways. So I'm going to spend a good chunk of today just asking Lauren probing questions and clarifications as we kind of walk through what game-based learning is, how you can incorporate it into your classroom, how you can do it on a small scale, which is where you should always start out, um, and how you know it can really radically transform in, in very meaningful ways, the, the learning that your students are doing. So let's start at the beginning, which is what is game-based learning? So Lauren, how would you define this for people who have never even heard of this word or, or who have heard of it and got scared and then just kind of walked away? What is game-based learning? So I, I will preface this with saying, um, just in case there are any hardcore uh, game-based learning stands out there, um, don't get in my mentions. I am using game-based learning as an umbrella term because you will hear uh, the term game-based learning applied to a lot of different things. Um, generally, it kind of means one thing now in industry terms, but um, for the purposes of today, we will use it as an umbrella term. And so game-based learning is basically um, anything where we are looking at games in the classroom and how games can enhance engagement, how games can um, uh, provide us with a way of delivering content or another method of, um, of providing instruction uh, or going through instruction. Um, before so you, before yeah. you get into the different types, though, I want to ask, um, so first, I think it's really important that you've expanded that out to an umbrella term. Um, but, but let's, let's be, begin with the question of like why games so if, if game-based learning is this umbrella umbrella term is about using games um either in their like already existing form or kind of creating them like why 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 should we invite games into our classroom sure so if you think about what games are uh and and you can think about this for any context that you know games in. So I know that not everybody does video games, but uh, maybe you're really into board games. Maybe you're really into tabletop role play. Any game that you have is designed to keep your attention um, for a small span of time and have you work toward a certain goal. Sometimes that goal is singular, sometimes it's cooperative, um, but you're always trying to do something. And so if we think about education, uh, that's basically what we do every day in our classrooms. We want to keep our students' attention for our 50, 75 minutes, however long we have them, and we're working towards 
this kind of abstract goal of them learning something in scare quotes. And so sometimes that means um, having them being able to do something by the end of the class, having them be able to do something, and I mean do something in terms of having a certain skill set by the end of the semester. Um, sometimes that means a better understanding of something, but we all have these specific goals for our classrooms. So when we add in games, what we're adding in are the aspects that push our buttons basically um, in terms of how do we get to that point? How do we keep that motivation to perform um, and in what different ways? So when we add games or when we gamify something, it's basically uh, taking the way we think about games in terms of breaking it down into the pieces of a game rather than just, oh, games are fun, um, but breaking it down into the mechanics of the game and applying those to our classroom to hopefully um, transfer that sort of style of motivation to the learning environment. So I think one thing that, that is important for me and what you just said is that you're, you're really explicitly separating this from that term that was really popular but it's really problematic and that is edutainment, right? Mm -hmm. This idea yeah. of like, but are you entertained, right? Um, and, and what you're suggesting is, is that it's, it's not just about like, can you say in every class period, my students had fun? Because that's, that's not, I don't think, that should not be a high priority goal necessarily, especially mm -hmm. not when you're talking about certain topics that maybe one should not have fun with. But what you're saying, and I think this is so important, is that when we break down what a game is, it, there's an, an explicit, clearly defined from the start objective. Mm -hmm. um, there is a temporal unit, right? They, they, we know how long an average game should last, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and for those of you that, that didn't resonate with any of the, the nerdy forms of games, right? Like games can also be like the Olympic games, right? Like any, anything that sure. has clearly a clearly defined objective, specific temporal constraints. There are explicit rules of engagement of what mm -hmm. you can and cannot do. Um, there is room for failure usually, right? Um, and then it's not necessarily about fun or entertainment, but it's about curiosity and engagement, mm -hmm. right? Um, because you don't play a game if you're not wanting to, right? If you're not enjoying the experience. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so one thing, one thing that I do want to add to that is this idea of edutainment um, and, and why game-based learning is not that is I think one of the things that happens when we start talking about gamification, game-based learning, is people sort of, first of all, think video games. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the first issue because games kind of, the game span, like you just said, so many other things, the Olympic games, football, basketball, sports, those sorts of things. But also, um, so people think video games and a lot of people have very strong opinions about video games, good or bad. Right. Um, but the other thing that happens is that whatever type of thing comes to your mind when people say games, a lot of people think that like people who like games are constantly having fun while they're playing the game. Huh. And as a gamer, <laughs> I can tell you as someone who spent an amount of time that I'm not going to admit on air, trying <laughs> to beat the Aladdin level of Kingdom Hearts. Um, sometimes games are not fun. Sometimes you keep going because you are frustrated and you are going to beat this yeah. no matter what. Um, as someone who has regular or used to have regular game nights with friends and has played Munchkin a few times. Oh my gosh. Um, where, where one 
wrong draw of the cards means you lose everything. Um, uh, games are frustrating. Games games make you upset. I think everyone has played Monopoly before. So <laughs> so when you're trying to, if, if you're still trying to reconcile like the idea of, well, I don't want to be a teacher who's just using fun to, to hook my students, but not giving them any content. Game-based learning is really all about the content though. And we'll talk about how to gamify a course um, and what that looks like in a little bit, but um, you're thinking about the content as a teacher in a completely different way when you yeah. go in to use games in any way in the classroom. And so um, when you start making those plans, it will definitely come out. It will definitely, it should definitely be evident in your classroom that this isn't just a gimmick. This isn't like a trick to get students to get better attendance. Like it's actually a method of delivering the content. And when you when you said you know that games can be frustrating, right? It's so very true. Um, but you, if you're frustrated, you can't also be apathetic, right? Yes. So I think what's really important is is that it, you're right. It's not about necessarily positive emotions, but it is about emotions. And mm -hmm. and to be perfectly honest, the science of learning has proven time and time again that emotional investment in something translates to um, better understandings, better retention of, in terms of memory, uh, you know, it just, it has an impact and there's something about game design, right. That I think yields itself to, to emotional investment, right. In mm -hmm. a way that, um, sometimes, sometimes a lecture cannot. Now I've heard lectures that have, that have emotionally engaged me. Um, so that's not saying lectures are bad. It's just saying that it's intrinsically built into, mm -hmm. um, games because games are really designed with the, the participant, the player in mind first, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so if we have this huge umbrella term of, of game-based learning, and if we understand that like games are first just awesome, but also that the, the principles of games are really something that, that are gonna allow us to really radically change our classroom. Um, you said that there are different types or different things that fall under this umbrella. So what are some of the different things that fall under this umbrella, including the one that often kind of gets conflated uh, with just game-based learning on a bigger scale? Mm -hmm. So you've got serious games first. So serious games, and, and a lot of this is contextual as to where the separation is, right? So I'll give some examples. So serious games are the ones that are used um, to deliver the content the the game itself is built around the content so an example of that is um, in in nursing school if you have a game where you are practicing um, different nursing principles and where you're practicing communication with patients families in different contexts and that sort of thing the content is actually being delivered by the game um, same thing if you have a, a game that the military is using to train soldiers or a game that a therapist is using um, to help with PTSD, something like that. So the context around it is serious, but it's also being, the content is being delivered through the game. Excellent. So simulations is a perfect yes. example of a serious game. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so uh, we also have gamification. And gamification, I think, is probably what people think when they hear game-based learning, which is turning your classroom into a game, turning the actual course experience or part of the course experience, it can be just a unit, um, into a game. Uh, and so uh, an example of this is if you have, um, if you have, you know, a, a comp one class where uh, you give them a context that they're all a magazine now, they all work for a magazine that you made up and they are working to um, basically be, be the one with the featured article at the end of every unit or something like that. So it has a defined narrative that the students are following, usually, not always, we'll get into that later, but um, usually has a defined narrative. And then there are other game elements that fit within that narrative. And I think it's the, the narrative aspect that often makes it tricky for some mm -hmm. people, right? Because oh, <laughs> they'll be like, but I don't see why in my, um, you know, introduction to ancient world literature class, I, I'm, I'm going to have a narrative where they're all llama farmers. And it's like, <laughs> because that doesn't make sense, right? Or like, it seems like every book I've ever read is like, you know what you should have as your narrative? Pirates. And then it's like, but does pirates work for like, I don't know, introduction to world religions? I don't feel like it does. However, pirates in an econ course, that I am down behind, right? So I, th I think that, that that's one of the, the issues people have. But as you said, you're gonna get into this more um, about ways that we can build these sort of appropriate narratives. Okay, so we have serious games, which is about um, using a game to, to help students better understand specific content or skill sets. Um, then we have gamification, which is where everything is sort of built upon the, the principles of games, the objectives, the points, right, all that stuff. And then there's a third major category, right? Mm -hmm, which is games for learning. This is the one where uh, my hardcore gamification people, game-based learning people are gonna be like, oh, Lauren. Um, so game-based learning and games for learning are the two that sometimes are used interchangeably. Um, a lot of times game-based learning is used for all three of these. Uh, so you kind of have to parse out what your specific person or book um, is talking about. But games for learning is the idea that we are taking a game that is just out there in the world and we are using it to learn a specific thing or to practice a specific thing within the educational context. So this is different from serious games because the game itself does not have any of our content in it usually, um, but, uh, but we're still using it in a learning environment. So this would be something like if you have a, um, a communication class uh, using World of Warcraft in order to get some of those communication um, concepts down. This would be something like if you have a technical writing or, or professional writing class um, using lots of different board games or computer games in order to uh, get students to understand instruction writing. Um, this would be something like if you have a business course of any kind and you're practicing team building and, and conflict negotiation using something like Telestrations or, or something uh, cooperative like Munchkin um, or where you're right against each other. So not cooperative like Munchkin. <laughs> um, so, so some of those sorts of things, but it's bringing a game that's completely external, has nothing to do with necessarily 
what you're teaching, the subject you're teaching, but is a good way to kind of practice a skill set or practice something within the classroom. And I think that of the three, um, Games for Learning is both the, the easiest to quickly insert into a class, but also the hardest to to make sure that that it's serving the purpose it needs to, mm -hmm. because you have to build in that time for reflection. If you're doing a, a simulation, a serious game, and you know, if you ask students like, how did this inform how you would interact with patients? They can tell you right away. If you're doing an improv game, um, like I have an improv game that I have them do to have them think about transitions between paragraphs. Um, and I have to, we have to like really spend some, some dedicated time in reflection because they're not going to just be like, ah, yes, this random improv activity that makes perfect sense. Right. You kind of have to guide them a little bit more. Um, so I think that in some ways it's, it's the, the easiest and the hardest because it, there are so many improv games. There are so many, um, like icebreaker type games, but it's on you to make sure your students see the connection. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's something where um, I, I will harp on about this for, for ages, if you let me, but the idea of having course objectives and having specific measurable course objectives is so important to game-based learning because of what you just said, um, especially if you're using games for learning, but e even for the other types of GBL, like knowing what your students are supposed to be getting out of the course, out of each unit, out of each specific class meeting goes so far in helping you in those kind of crunch periods of, okay, um, the way I designed the course narrative to go, does that work for this sort of thing? Um, I was planning on bringing in, you know, telestrations or cards against humanity, God forbid, um, into the classroom. <laughs> does that actually work for the, for what I want them to understand? Um, and we'll talk about getting feedback from students a little bit later, but this is also one of the things where it's good to have that open communication with your students going in terms of being transparent um, and talking about, hey, I know we're doing this kind of weird random thing today, um, or hey, I know this course is probably going to look different than your other courses. Here's why I'm doing this. Um, it's, I know, so kind of uh, goes against a lot of what we feel like we should have to do as professors. Um, but I think that transparency goes a long way with also getting the students on board to what you're going to be doing. And to me, that is the selling point of, of, the, of not just incorporating GBL, but of, of using that framework. Because we've all been playing games since we were actually in the infancy, right? If you had parents play peekaboo with you or anything like that, we have been playing games um, as, a, as humans pretty much since the beginning as, as individuals, um, essentially from the beginning. And so we know how to play games and we know, like if someone came to you and said, we're gonna play a game and I'm not gonna tell you the objective until after <laughs> you have lost or won, or we're gonna play a game, but I'm not gonna tell you how to succeed. I want to see if you can figure it out, right? People, you immediately say, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever do that? <laughs> or if someone's going to say, we're going to play a game and you may not have the same instructions as someone else, right? So one of you is playing like house and one of you is playing war, right? Um, like again, we immediately rebel against that because we know fundamentally that's wrong, but sometimes classes get designed that way, right? Because mm -hmm. we aren't from infancy trained to create courses, but you have to have courses that have objectives that have clear instructions for success and that 
are clearly the same game as being played by everyone, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I just find it so helpful um, in making sure I'm doing the things that, that will allow my students to win the game because that's what we want, right? Um, we want students who, who walk out successful with whatever our objective is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hopefully by now, we're like 20 minutes in, people are hopefully like, yes, I'm 100% behind GBL. I'm excited about the ideas of incorporating to various degrees, the different types. Um, let's go into more like the, like what are the actual components, particularly if you wanna gamify a course or a unit, like what are the things that, that we need to keep in mind or be aware of in our planning stages? Mm-hmm. So for the love of all that is holy, if you learn nothing else, plan ahead. Um, So I know that a lot of times the idea of gamifying a class can be really, really intriguing um, and and really, really motivating in and of itself to to do this. Um, And sometimes we have the perfect idea, right? So a lot of times you got to kind of figure out, okay, how is this going to work? Um, but a lot of times we're like, no, I teach this class every single semester. I know for a fact, if I do this sort of gamification, it's going to be off the hook. Right. Um, and so we think that we can do that in the week before the semester starts. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, no, you no, can't. No. Um, so make sure you are giving yourself a lot of time and plan ahead. That's so if that's you the were step. <laughs> listening to this podcast in August, please do not plan on your first unit or maybe any unit in this class in the fall being gamified. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's because there are a lot of um, moving pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Like game Absolutely. designers, game developers, they spend years on one game. And that's if it's not a game that has um, like if it's not a video game, right, that you have to build the code. I'm talking like if you have a board game, people spend years on just that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you have to spend years preparing for this one class, but no, you definitely, but definitely should months. give yourself, yes, not a week. Um, yeah, don't do I would, it. I would say it's it's doable over a summer. So if you have like May through the end of May through the end of August when yeah. when school starts again, absolutely doable if you have a semester. So if you're listening to this again in August and you're like, ah, let's get it popping for the spring, also doable. But in like a week, two weeks, you're gonna frustrate yourself. Yeah, all you're doing is making yourself sad. Yeah. So so, so the actual mechanics. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. there's a lot of them. Yeah. So um, I think the the first place to start after you've given yourself time is the path and the pace of your game. So thinking about, you know, all the other stuff, it'll come together at the end or, you know, as you continue to move it. But it's important to know what steps your students are going to follow um, and how they're going to follow them and how quickly they're going to follow them. So um, just just to kind of give you an idea of of what that means, you can have a course where the path is completely linear and you go from level one to level two to level three to level four. um, And those are just the units of the course, right? Um, and you can still do that and still have a pace where everybody's together and still have other gamified elements. So don't think that you have to completely nuke however your class runs to do this, Um, but 
there are different there are different structures that you can use. So you can use a branching structure where you tell your students, okay, um, I know that I have this class. Some of you are here for your major. Some of you are here for your minor. Some of you are here for your elective. So here are the three different types of things, and I've structured them to kind of fill um, those needs for you. But you can pick whichever path you want. So you can pick path A, B, or C, and any path you pick, you're going to be doing the exact same amount of work. You're going to be meeting the exact same course um, contents, but the just the elements are a little bit different, um, or course objectives, I should say. Uh, but the elements are a little bit different. So you can have that, or you can do what I do, which is have a what we call a cafeteria style, um, where they pick everything. So they can pick a little bit from column A, column B, column C. Um, and again, this is where having very, very specific course objectives um, comes into play. So a good way if you're going to do that is just have a matrix of your different units that are down the side and then your course objectives across the top and think about the ways in which each assignment is fitting in with unit one, objective one, unit one, objective two, that sort of thing. Um, because for a cafeteria style course, basically you make more assignments than any student could possibly do. Uh, and they get to choose, pick and choose. Um, so those are the different structures, but pacing is important too. Um, and we can get into that a little bit. Katie, did you have a question about Yeah, so structure? I, I just wanna say um, a couple of things. So I wanna say first that um, what I love about the ways that you're explaining these things is that as instructors, you should be hearing these and thinking to yourself, oh, but I, I already pay attention to pacing because I scaffold things or, oh, I already give my students some choice. Um, and, and that's really, again, it goes back to the reason that GBL is so effective is that it's taking some of the best principles of pedagogy, like transparency, like student agency, um, like scaffolding, but making them very intentional, right? Um, and, and I think that sometimes um, what I hear from faculty uh, is this, this overwhelming, like the moment you said choice, right? Um, mm -hmm. A lot of faculty are like, uh, 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 can't do it too much brain overloading because there are definitely um, some things that have to be considered. So first we have to go back to, to Lauren's point of planning ahead. If you are giving students the cafeteria structure, as she said, you are building more assignments than anyone can do um, or more assignments than, than you expect them to do, which means that you're designing more assignments, right? So you are gonna have to spend some time doing that. The other thing, and I, I hear this frequently, but we've talked about this on this podcast, we will continue to talk about it on this podcast. And that is, is that, you know, um, this really important reminder that um, something can be equitable, even if it's not equal. And I'm talking particularly in terms of grading, okay. right? So I've had people be like, but you know, what if one student chooses a haiku and another student chooses a 25 page research paper? It's not fair that both would be worth 20%. Absolutely Well, don't not. do that. First of all, don't do that. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? So what you do is, as you say, if you choose the haiku, or the, um, I don't know, something else that's really tiny, that's worth five points at the cafeteria, right? That's your little snack, but you have to also pick, you know, which form of pasta you want. Is it lasagna? Is it spaghetti? Is it whatever? Um, and, and I think that you just kind of have to remember as the instructor that, that it is 100% possible to, to create an equitable grading system 
um, that still allows for student choice. And I think in a future episode, um, because we're gonna kind of keep talking about game-based learning for, for the next couple of episodes in some ways, um, we can go into that more, into like how one would grade the three different structures of universal um, branching or cafeteria. But, but let's go back to pacing. So each of those requires, if it's a universal plan, if it's a branching plan, or if it's a cafeteria style, um, slightly different pacing structures, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, uh, to go back to something we said before, this is again where transparency is going to help you because a lot of the, the frustration that we as faculty feel about that whole idea of how do I make this fair is being able to also explain it to students like, oh, they did this for unit one, but I did all of this. So why do we have the same grade? And so if you're transparent, and again, going back to planning ahead, if you have all of this mapped out and can clearly articulate it to students, um, then that helps a lot. And that kind of brings us into pacing because figuring out what pace you want students to do um, is very, very important. And we want to know that at the outset. And so the easiest thing to do if you are just getting started with game-based learning is to set a pace that everyone does together. So we're gonna go through unit one, unit two, unit three, unit four, right? And we're all gonna do that together. So when we are in unit one, we're all reading the same things. And maybe you have a branching structure, maybe you've got the A, B, or C line through the course, but every A, every choice, A, B, and C all has a unit one, and they all have a project or an assignment or some sort of assessment. Um, they all have reading. So we're all going through basically the same amount of work at the same time. That's the easiest. Now, you can also make it so that your students can work ahead. Um, what I try to do is you can work ahead, but not back. And so once unit one has closed, um, and there's a lot of different ways you can do this, but for me, it's once unit um, one has closed, uh, when we, unit one closes when we get to unit three, basically. So if you are in unit two and you're looking back going, eh, maybe I should have done something unit one, you still can. But once we hit unit three, unit one is done and gone forever. Um, no, there's no working backwards and going back to those assignments. Um, and so for the students, I think that it gives them a little bit of grace for the students who maybe are falling behind because uh, it doesn't close it right away. Uh, but for the students and then for the students that want to work ahead, they can work ahead. Um, so for the ones who are um, who are trying to get things done quickly or know that they are traveling for sports and wanna make sure that they don't miss out on an assignment in unit three or unit four, something like that, they can work ahead. Um, and then I don't necessarily let it, uh, uh, recommend letting it be a free for all where you no. can just like, where they can kind of work at their own pace. I do know people who have done it before um, and but that requires all of the other mechanics to be really, really firm and really hardcore. Um, and so I think that pathing and pacing the structure and the timing of the course is that space for you to kind of exert a little bit of control as the professor. That way it's not stressing you out. And also it's not stressing the students out because if it's a free for all, there are a lot of students who are just going to be like, what is this? <laughs> And I, I'm actually, so I, again, I know that there are 
really shining examples of people who've done this very, very effectively. Um, but I'm going to actually make like a hard argument for why why you should just never do free all free for all. <laughs> and it, it actually um, has nothing to do with the fact that I, I think that's you asking for an awful lot of grading at the end of the semester. But it has more to do with the fact that I think part of our responsibility as faculty um, is to help students understand to understand pacing, right? We have written, if you're in the humanities, you have written research papers for years and you know what is actually required and involved in a way that a student doesn't, right? Um, even a third year or fourth year uh, hum humanities major still probably does not have as much experience as you do um, in, in pacing, right? And so by, by making decisions for your students, um, you're giving them the training wheels they need, especially as first years and second years, um, because they don't know, right? They don't know that like this can't actually be done in one sitting, right? Mm -hmm. And so they'll try it. So I, I actually think that it's part of our responsibility to guide, to model best mm -hmm. practices for pacing. Yeah. Okay. Point. So we have path and, and pace, um, which again, we should be doing these things anyway. This is scaffolding, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we have structure, which is about student choice and student agency. Uh -huh. And it's also about letting students um, demonstrate their strengths, right? Uh -huh. um, and, and that's, there's nothing lost by that, right? Um, the next one. Can we pause for a second on oh, structure? Please. Yeah, because one other thing about structure, it kind of branches off from path and pace, but structure also has to do with kind of level by level or unit by unit what you are, how you're structuring each thing. So let's say you have the A, B, or C option so they can mm -hmm. take whatever track they want. Um, great. We know that that's the path and everybody's going to be in following along with each other, basically in level one at the same time, level two at the same time, so on and so forth. But within level one, what does it look like? So uh, uh, some of this has to do with when do other game mechanics come up, but some of it is just um, the structure of everything in terms of the class and the course content. So when do we bring in the readings? Are they having reading homework every night? And how does that affect whatever gamified things we have going on. So how does that affect um, how the sign assignments fit into the game? How does that affect how classroom activities and participation fit into the game? Um, what does the actual sort of unit to unit and day to day or course to course session look like in terms of the structure? Um, if you're using something like a leaderboard, what does that look like? Do we only show the leaderboard at the end of the unit, at the end of the level, or do we show it at the end of every week? Um, and so those sorts of things go into structure too. And again, these are things you should be doing anyway, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, the OCD person in me sometimes feels like I have to, you know, like me, if that Wednesday has to be from nine to nine fifteen X activity, and 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 I and I think that there are advantages to that, but there's also disadvantages to to having like this compulsive need to have everything be precise, but, but there's something, but students need to know, right? They need to understand the structure. They need to understand patterns. Patterns are how we make meaning. Um, and again, when you think about games, 
even games that have built in chaos moments, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They build those moments in between the structure, right? Games are very much about, it is my turn now. I have four decisions that I can make. um, And then it shifts to X, right? And and that's very, um, again, it's about pattern building. building. So even if you're not thinking, I'm bringing in an explicit game, you should still be having that very clear structure for our students and it should be planned ahead of time. One of the biggest complaints I hear from students is not even about the amount of work they have to do. It's about not knowing what that that structure is ahead of time, right? And finding out like last minute, oh, by the way, for next week, I want you to do a reading. You've never done a reading before, but you are now, right? Like um, you need to build that in. Absolutely. Okay, so sometimes when I think of, of structure, I, I immediately think of, of narrative because mm-hmm. they are interconnected. Um, and I think every class should have a narrative, not in terms of, again, like, ahoy mateys, we're on the open sea. Yeah, <laughs> but it should have a narrative in that you should have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Where's the exposition? Uh, where's the rising action? Where's the climactic moment in the course? And then how? Are, what's the denouement, right? How are you wrapping it up? But in a gamified course, you're often having, in addition to that more um, sort of liberal definition of, of a narrative, you're often having a more explicit Again, maybe not pirates, but a more <laughs> explicit narrative. What? Why? What? What do we gain from that? So this is kind of what ha- helps students in their path, whatever pace you choose for them to be on. But um, this is what gets them through every level or the the connecting through line through every unit. And so, like you said, even if you're not, ha- you're not make, like fictionalizing something, classes we have, we have thematic content that goes through every level that we teach or every unit that we teach. We have certain ideas or concept or skill sets that go through every unit we teach that builds upon each other and that sort of thing. So when we're thinking about a narrative, we're thinking about the story that takes us from A to Z in our class. Um, and we want to make that both appropriate in terms of the, the content of what we're teaching. So like some people are teaching incredibly serious things, uh, like, you know, the history of Rwanda. We don't want to do um, something like we're all space pirates now. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> that would we're, be so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's not. No, that's not it. So we don't want to do something like that, but it also needs to be appropriate for your students. And this is a lot of the times where um, I, I get the most questions because like, how do you know what students you have in your class? So sometimes you're really lucky, like me, I taught a learning community full of baby engineers. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I know a few things right off the bat. Number one, they're driven. Number two, they like science. Mm -hmm. Number three, they probably have some level of nerdiness in them at some point. Now, depending Mm -hmm. on what flavor that is, um, you know, the narrative might not go, it might go better or worse for some of them, but I can make something pretty nerdy. So in my class full of baby engineers, they played through a narrative where they were living on a space station in the far flung future. And they had to advance from junior researchers to senior researchers. The junior researching level is all of their gen eds. The senior researching level is when they get to go have fun with all of their engineering classes. And I actually worked with an engineering coordinator to put all of this together. And so since they were in a gen ed as um, junior researchers, they had to research different things within STEM on earth 
in the past um, before they could actually go to Earth, have their have their like practicum and then be senior engineers. It was goofy. But let me tell you, I had students calling me Commander Malone by the end of that semester. There were students who bought into it completely. And there are students who are like, this is is dumb, but um, that's fine. And I think that's one of the really important things to remember about narrative. You are not holding out for universal appeal here at all. It is, again, it's a vehicle. It is something that gets you from point A to point Z in the semester. And so it allowed them to have some moments of creativity in the class, um, depending on, you know, what sort of activity I was asking them to do. Uh, But it also, you know, just kind of made sense for them where they were um, in terms of A, they were freshmen, um, B, they're about to head off into these incredibly demanding classes. Um, So it gave them kind of that moment of respite, um, kind of set against the rest of their classes. But again, it was still delivering the content. They were still researching STEM stuff for me. It was a, it was a research and composition class. So they were still researching STEM stuff. Um, they were still using multimodal communication in their different projects and they were still um, writing. It was a writing intensive course. So they were still writing a lot of things. Um, and so I, in that way, made it sort of appropriate for both for both um, the content and the students. Now, sometimes we don't have that. Sometimes, our, most of the time, in fact, our students are a mixture of, uh, of wants, of needs, of majors, of interests, those sorts of things. And in that case, you have to go with, uh, you have to go with your gut. Um, but in that case, you can rely more heavily on making sure it is appropriate for the content. And usually if it's appropriate for the content, it will be appropriate for the students. And so um, for a business communication class, the uh, I had the groups running a business. Um, so five groups, they each ran a business for the semester. And the narrative was that they were all going through this professional development course. And so the professional development course was going to have their businesses doing certain things to practice. And that was the narrative. So it wasn't, you know, the fantasized uh, sort of fictionalized thing. It was just, it was something that frankly, some of them might go through in, in real life. Um, but it was that, that kind of story that allowed me to, you know, bring in outside instructors when they were giving their presentations so they could get like feedback from other people. Um, And so um, to kind of simulate the idea of shareholders, um, those sorts of things. There are a couple of things that I I think are are worth unpacking in there. Again, particularly for people that are finding themselves simultaneously really excited by this idea, but also terrified because they're like space station. Now that's the only narrative I know, space mm-hmm. station. So one is, uh, I, I have a colleague um, at another university who's um, who used to be at our university who teaches a class on ecosystems. And she uh, had a, a little tiny narrative where they each got to build their little like forest, right? And so for certain tasks, they would get the seeds. And then after they had seeds, they could get animals and the animals could, you know, pollinate, you know, and I mean, so it doesn't have to be like super elaborate or complex Um, because to be perfectly honest, and I think this is worth sharing, Lauren is a creative writer, right? Mm -hmm. So am I. And so for both of us, we're like, yes, I will have, and it doesn't have to be 
as elaborate as that space station. I'm so glad you gave that other example because honestly, there's very little like imagining that needs to happen in the, your business, right? Like, you know, they don't have to, to necessarily, you wouldn't have to necessarily spend time saying, okay, imagine what your ideal work location looks like. You could build that in if that's relevant, but like you could also keep it really simple. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things I think is problematic about the, the scholarship that exists on, on a lot of GBL is that a lot of it is geared more for K-12. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so absolutely. the result is, the result is, is twofold. Um, it's that, you know, they, they're suggesting really intense um, narratives that um, I'm not sure all, all uh, college students are, are going to want to get involved in, right? Where they like come up with, you know, I'm going to go back to my pirate example. They're like, come up with, um, you know, your ship's flag and have everyone draw it. I'm not sure that's necessary ever outside of maybe like a K through 12 situation. Um, and so we go back to this, uh, this issue of, of remember, remember that you are working with college students, which means they are both still excited to play. But also um, just remember to go back to the, to the point from the beginning, which is does what you're asking them to do serve the bigger objective, mm -hmm. right? So is there a reason that they need to come up with the shared flag of the ship? Maybe there is, right? Maybe the point of the class is about um, community building and learning how to compromise, in which case coming up with an, a shared agreed flag is actually something that's relevant. If it's about learning to understand microeconomics, maybe the flag exercise isn't, right? So I think when it comes to narrative, remember to put in as much um, as is needed to get students to be invested um, and to help your structure and pace, but, but to not feel obligated um, to like, make up a language that everyone's going to speak because, um, you know, the elves in the forest, right? Like you don't have to go that, that elaborate, um, but some students will, right. You'll have those students that are like, but can I make a flag? And it's like, sure, you do whatever your little heart needs. Um, and that's the exciting thing, right. It's not like you said, some students are just going to be like, this is fun. Um, and they're going to be driven by that emotion to do more. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are some things that a narrative needs to have, which kind of goes into the next elements of, of a gamified course in that um, narratives need to have stakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be um, obstacles to overcome um, and there need to be characters, right? There needs to be a setting. Um, and I feel like this fits really nicely with, with the next three sort of elements, which is leveling roles and incentives, right? Mm -hmm. Because whatever your narrative is, once you know that, you can begin to think about how does one level up, right? How does one prove that they've overcome? Um, what roles are characters are in my narrative? And what is the reward um, or the incentive for completing the story, right? And um, completing the narrative. So, so let's begin with leveling, uh, which is a pretty basic component of, of GBL. What is leveling and what do people need to think about at sort of the onset? So leveling is the idea of I have now progressed, right? And so one of the one of the things that is immersive about video games specifically is this idea of I've gone through this small <clears throat> period of tutorial and now I'm the actual player, I'm the character in this game. And after a set amount of trials or a set amount of puzzles that I solve or a set amount of whatever, I gain experience, I gain HP or I gain uh, stars or something, whatever 
the game is using to keep track of it. And so as you gain that experience, um, sometimes that comes with bigger rewards. Sometimes it comes with just being able to do better, bigger things. Um, but there's an idea that you are continuously progressing uh, at a certain pace. And this really is what gets tied into our assignments, right? And before I jump into this, I do want to say all of this is optional. So you can have a, a gamified course where you only have your narrative and a few different paths that your students can choose. And maybe your assignments, you know, fit the narrative in some way. Um, but you don't have to have like leveling roles in all of this. It's all optional. So if they're, so I'm trying to like not scare people away basically. Right. But if there are parts of this, especially because um, all of our classes are so different. So if there are parts that are going to work better for some classes than others, but um, to go back to leveling, the a, a lot of times the easiest way to do this is just to look at your units and your assignments and say, okay, at the end of unit one, if you pass our, um, our end of unit one assessment, then you are now at level two. Congratulations. And it's super easy and it's more it's more positive reinforcement than anything. Mm -hmm. But there are also ways of actually giving students different levels so uh, of things. So just to, as an example, um, to continue with our example of the three branch structure course, um, you know, maybe you're on path A, but, and you've gotten through unit one and you've done your assignment, but maybe you got a C on that assignment, maybe struggles, you know, you can have that student and tell them, you know, we're moving on to unit two, but you are still at um, novice level, right? So in unit two, you need to do these different things to advance to um, beginner or intermediate or whatever. And so you can have the levels based on how well they're doing in the class. You can have levels also if you're doing more cafeteria style where they get to choose what they're doing, picking choose what they're doing, you can have those levels that are based on the amount of work that they're doing because some students, again, um, the reason I do cafeteria style is because I teach an elective. Um, so uh, no one needs my classes for their, their major usually. Um, and so everybody's in there for a different reason. Some people are in there because this is what they want to study and they're going to be go-getters and they want an A and they're going to get an A. And so they're going to go above and beyond all the way. And for those students, you know, they can have the grandmaster level or whatever it is. Um, but there are students who they're like, you know what, I just needed another class um, so I can graduate and all I have to do is pass it, right? Um, and they might be perfectly fine with getting to intermediate level or whatever you're terming the levels. And so um, having them you, having them separate from the grade is sometimes good in those situations um, so that they know, yeah, like, yeah, you're at intermediate level, but you're fine, you have an A. Um, but if you have more of a class that has that um, pathing structure or the linear structure where everyone's going through it together. Sometimes you can have those levels that are uh, connected to the grade and that works just fine too. And I wanna 
say, because I've decided my role today is to remind people that many of us are doing these things without realizing that's what we're calling them. So mm -hmm. one of the things I think is, is so profound that video games have done, and, and board games have started doing this too, um, is the practice round or the tutorial. So there's a video game called Red Dead Redemption that I've never made it past the tutorial <laughs> because you have to ride a horse. And one of the things I cannot do in video games is, is do anything that involves me being like driving, right? Um, and so I've never gotten past that. Um, but in other games, right, where I have successfully completed the tutorial, the tutorial lets me know with low stakes, um, what are the game mechanics? How do I succeed? What do I need to know? What is the objective? What are the rules? And we should all have those low stakes assignments at the start, right? Um, because all students begin our courses as beginners. Even if they are a senior in our major, they are still a beginner in our class. Um, and the other thing that it does uh, that leveling can do is it, again, it helps students know not just issues of grade, because I think that that is a separate beast. Um, it lets them understand that we, we need to think about um, like our knowledge where we're at versus where we want to be. So video games will often tell you like, hey, you are a level 12. This this enemy is a level 34. You need to walk away. Um, and, then, and then, you know, and you're like, OK, good to know. I'll go do some smaller stuff um, or you know, leveling will let you kind of make sense of the various things you've done because you're getting to kind of say, okay, well, now that I'm a, uh, you know, uh, level two, um, this means that that I'm a level two because I chose option A and option C, right? Um, if I had just chosen option A and B, I would have stayed at level one because they're the same thing. So, mm -hmm. so something else that leveling allows people to do is to make sense of the learning that they've gone on mm -hmm. um, because you, you could have the leveling be instead of, level one, level two, level three, that sort of thing, or beginning, intermediate, advanced, it could be um, you have leveled into, and this is gonna tie into the next topic, which is roles, but you have leveled up um, so that your skill sets now mean that you're a level two medic, right? Because you've been thinking about the interplay between medicine and humanities, as opposed to a um, level two, I don't know. I have, I have no other option. I was, I was about to say, wow, you're doing this on the fly. I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, yeah no, I, I like a level two ranger, right. Which is where mm -hmm. you're thinking about scouting and, and, and looking ahead. Right. Which mm -hmm. leads us to, to the next thing, which is roles, which again is optional. Um, but it, it goes back to that idea that students benefit when they get to like, think about who they are, who they want to be and how they want to engage with the learning. So what do you mean? Um, when you talk about creating roles beyond you know student instructor in a game-based learning environment so i think it's important to know that unless you're doing a very very specific type of gamification this does not mean role play yeah this doesn't mean they're coming up with a character that they are then playing in the class again we don't have time to get into that type of gamification today there it, there are classes that do that but they're doing it for a very specific purpose that we don't have time to talk about so yeah, yeah. when we talk about roles we're talking about what function the student performs in the classroom and this can be in terms of singularly or individually but it, we should also think about this um sort of uh, collectively too. And so when we're thinking about it individually, and you can come up with fun names like Katie just said, medic and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, 
but you can you can come up with other things too that are maybe more more um, connected with your content. But what we're thinking about individually is if the student decides that hey, okay, I I'm taking path A. What does that mean for what they do? Does it mean that they they have a very specific role that they are um, doing in terms of their reading? They're reading like specific types of things or something different than the rest of the class. Does it mean they're doing a specific type of assignments? What do those look like? Um, does it mean that they just have a particular interest? Because you can do that too. So again, using Katie's medic metaphor, that's perfect of, okay, this is, um, this is a course about the conjunction of science and humanities. You're a medic because you decided you're going to look at how um, technology is used in the medical field and how that connects with the humanities. So you can do it like that too. Um, but you also want to think about how does this work? How does this function in the classroom setting itself? And so when you think about these things collectively, you're thinking about, okay, I have all of these roles and that's fine for students to just keep track of who they are and where they are. Okay, great. But what does that mean when they get together? What does that mean when we're doing peer review or group work or something like that? And so that's the kind of thing that you want to sort of think about when you're designing whatever, whatever roles that you're coming up with. And so um, I just found my, uh, my space station uh, syllabus. So I'm going to go through uh, which uh, roles we have. So we have the strategist. And so they could research topics like games and interactive technology. So remember, they're all researching STEM stuff in this class. It's a writing class, but they're, they all have different STEM things. Um, so they all have to research some sort of science and technology kind of, kind of interest. So the strategist can think of things like games, interactive technology, and generally the strategy the strategist is good at delivery. So analyzing the audience, making sure the message, message reaches them in the most effective way possible. I did have a medic in this class <laughs> and they're the ones who were researching health technology, food and nutrition science, those sorts of things. And they were good at context. So setting up the situation around an argument, understanding what things kind of affect the way our audience receives our message. I had gladiators, so they were researching things like technology and sports and athletics and fitness. Um, and these were my organizers. So they were the ones that were compiling a co the content in a way that makes sense. Um, and then I had bards. So they were um, the people researching things like music, fandom, film, all of that good stuff. And they were uh, for style. And so they were the ones who figured out what kind of features and flourishes the audience expects. And oh, I had scribes too. So. Uh, researching things like social media, history, archival research, and they are good at finding relevant, exciting content. So I'm doing two things here. First, I'm telling them what they are doing in the class in terms of what their interests are. So you get to play to your strengths when you pick a role, right? Um, the second thing I'm doing is I'm telling them what they are supposed to be functioning as in their groups. And so every group had each of these roles at least one of each of these roles. And when we're doing something like peer review, okay, scribes, this is where you tell your fellow students, okay, I get that you're really excited to talk about um, 
you know, uh, I'm about to date myself, Donathan Mc, Donovan McNabb's uh, different soup endorsements, but that doesn't actually have anything to do with your argument. So let's talk about something else here. Um, the medics uh, get to talk about, you know, how, how you set this up doesn't make sense for the, the stuff you're talking about down here. And the gladiators get to talk about, okay, why did you bring up this when you just said you were talking about this? And so they're still playing to their strengths, but now they're playing to their strengths in the types of writing that they actually perform or the types of communication that they're performing. Um, and so when they had group projects, that was their function too. That was what they brought to the table. So it's asking students to reflect on their learning in terms of not only what they're looking at um, or what they're excited about in the class, but how they actually contribute in the class setting. So importantly, there are a couple of different ways that you can have roles. You can have uh, roles that are based more on what they're gonna be investigating or the, the content that interests them, or you can have roles that are, that are about what is their function or what do they bring to a particular group or to the larger class. Mm -hmm. Now you can choose like Lauren did to, um, to integrate them and to just say, hey, think about this carefully. If you decide you're interested in medicine, um, and that's the, the avenue you want to pursue in terms of content, you need to also know that one of your responsibilities is, right, to, to pay attention to this aspect of, of the group work. Mm -hmm. um, or you could separate them, right? Mm -hmm. And you could, you could say, you know, you get to pick one of these and one of these, you know, and every group has to have one or, um, but that we can only have five of these roles, um, of these types of roles. I I think there's there's no right or wrong there. Uh, I've 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 done it both ways. I'm, I know you've done it both ways. I think it's mm -hmm. important to remember that we don't want to have like seventeen different role systems, right? You have your role for content, <laughs> your role for classroom conversation, and your role for group work. Right? That gets a little bit confusing because people won't know. They'll be mm -hmm. like, which of the seventeen different what which what are my roles? Um, but one of the advantages to this um, is that actually there's just countless advantages but one of them is is that um it can it can in um it can empower students to to be a devil's advocate or to be an agitator um when they might not feel comfortable doing it otherwise because they can say you know this isn't me criticizing you this is my role to to offer this this constructive criticism and so it kind of eliminates some of like the the interpersonal tension of like, but Bob said he hates my piece. Bob didn't say that, right? In his role, Bob's job is to, to offer two things for you to ponder. Um, and this can be really helpful in, in group discussions too, right? Um, oftentimes people will be like, you know, why do the same three or four people talk all the time? Well, if you say, you know, today you for your job is to do X, right? To know what your role is, to know what your purpose is in a class, um, honestly can just make it, it much easier for people to, to feel comfortable doing things. And I guarantee you, we have all had roles that we've assigned our students. We just didn't maybe know. If you've ever had a discussion leader, you have had roles in your classes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so a note taker, absolutely. Um, someone to remind you when the class is going to end, right? Whatever it might be, we all we, we have all done this. It's just when you do it from the beginning and you set it up a little bit more uh, systematically, there's nothing lost. 
mm-hmm. and only so much to be gained. Yeah. Um, and again, you can, if you want to get fancy with it, you can attach the roles to the levels. So you can be a level one medic versus a level five medic at the end of the course, if you like do certain things or perform certain tasks, that sort of thing. Um, but, and I'll say this again and again, my biggest thing with game-based learning is keep it simple. Um, keep it simple. So if all of this is starting to overwhelm you, then maybe your roles are just are, are just things like <clears throat> note taker, timekeeper, discussion leader, so on and so forth. And you go all out with the other stuff, but you have a way of, uh, you tie in those specific roles to maybe the narrative um, so that it makes sense, but you keep those roles simple. So keeping everything really simple. And again, like Katie said, don't have 17 different role structures here. Like maybe two, if you want to uh, separate um, interest versus function, Uh, but but yeah, don't have, don't have a bunch of them. Um, keep it simple so that you can remember what they're supposed to be doing so that they can remember what they're supposed to be doing. Because again, the role should do exactly what the narrative does, which it should be um, something else that propels the students from point A to point Z in the class. Um, and, and it should be, um, again, sort of personalized to them but also should serve a larger purpose in the classroom or a larger function in the classroom. Which is also true for the next thing to talk about, which is incentives. I think um, those of us that are really nerdy are like always gonna be excited by swag, right? (laughs) Um, Either the giving or the receiving of it. And so it can be really easy to be like, prizes there's gonna be prizes um (laughs) but but incentives is is about more more than just like stickers or things that you bought at the dollar store that you hand out to people although do not discount the value of those but but what is it that you mean um in a gamified course or unit when you think of incentives yeah so when we think about incentives this these are the motivators right and so these are the things that push us to, okay, uh, Dr. Malone said I only had to do one assignment this semester, but look at what can happen if I do two. <laughs> so, um, or um, this unit is supposed to be um, reading this chapter and doing this reflection for my particular role, but look at what happens if I also take this quiz over here. Um, and so, so the uh, two ways we think about this is intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. And I specifically have been involved in a study where we look at what is motivating students. Um, and there have been many, many studies on what, what motivates students, if it's intrinsic or extrinsic. And the, the uh, consensus is, it depends. It depends on mm-hmm. the student, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's good to have some some of each, right? Um, And this does not mean that you have to give away gift cards to Chili's. Um, I think that of all of these different game features, this is where I get the most hesitation or the most pushback because people think that this means they're buying their students love basically. (laughs) Um, And so they think this means that, you know, every Monday it's time to hand out prizes and -and so-and-so gets a teddy bear and -and so-and-so gets, you know, an Xbox. And and, no, that's not what this is. (laughs) So when we talk about 
um, intrinsic motivators. These are the students who are motivated internally by gaining new skills, getting better understandings of things in the classroom, um, getting just being able to just do more with their knowledge. Um, nothing necessarily needs to be given to them in order for them to be psyched about um, going to class or doing some extra work or um, you know finishing their assignment early, any of that. So those are the intrinsic motivators. And the extrinsic motivators are things like prizes if you're going to do something with prizes, but it does not have to be prizes at all. So these are the things like badges. Um, if you have a leveling system where they can be a level one through five medic, um, they can get a badge every time that they level up and those can go right onto Moodle, um, onto their Moodle pro or their T-Learn profile uh, for those of you at our institution, but um, onto Moodle, onto Canvas, every LMS has some sort of badge system. Um, it could be something like having their work featured in some way. Um, it can be something I, one thing that I use, especially when I have classes where um, they're doing a lot of group work is which group gets their stuff graded first. Because <laughs> um, uh, that, that's a good motivator, uh, let me tell you, because they, they'll be fighting over like, mm -hmm. no, we did this this way. So we should get like half of an extra point or we got ours in at this time at 11.05 instead of 11.15. So technically we get extra, you know, XP for that or whatever. So, um, so it can be things like that. Um, who, who gets their assignment graded first? Um, first dibs on uh, project topics. So um, in my business, uh, business communication class, the ending assignment is a very large report on taking their business that they run and moving it to a different country. And so they have to choose which country they're going to move it to. And I do not let groups pick the same country. And so guess what? The group that's at the top of the leaderboard, by the time we get to week meh, 11, they get to pick which country they get mm -hmm. first. And so that's a good motivator too. So it can be things like that that are collective or individualized for them. Um, if you're doing things like leaderboards, I really suggest either doing them for groups or somehow anonymizing them um, so that, you know, because we don't want to run into any FERPA things, but also, you know, you want this to be a motivator, not something that is stressing them out more about your class. And so I know that seeing like my name as 17th out of 20th is gonna, you know, bug me. <laughs> um, and, I, so, and I think that, you know, the, the thing is about leaderboards, right? Is that mm -hmm. they're, they're about competition and as somebody who, who loves to compete um you know th that can be a, a motivation but you don't want your classrooms to feel like a hostile competition right yeah, it's not um, about shaming it's about no. yeah it's and, about like pushing and so bit. you know doing it as a group is a good way to alleviate that um only doing it only having a leaderboard for maybe one aspect of the course right is mm -hmm. also a good way to kind of reduce it because you know we don't want to create a system where it feels like I was destined to be at the bottom of the leaderboard no matter what. When mm -hmm. I was in middle school, yep. we had to play chess um, and we were trying to get to the top, but the way that they determined the order was alphabetically. And my uh, maiden last name is Wagner. 
So I never made it. I never made it to the, I couldn't, I had no choice, right? I could never make it to the top. Um, and so, you know, building that in uh, is problematic. So there are two things that I think people push against in terms of incentives. Um, and one of them is, is badges, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which <laughs> we could spend like a five hour podcast just talking about badges and maybe someday we will. Um, <laughs> The, the short thing is, is badges are not a, a solution. They are a feature, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you yep. just, it's so important that like, people are like, why is my badge system not working? Because no one cares about your badges because you didn't make it so that people cared. So first, mm -hmm. before you badge, um, you talk to someone. <laughs> That's the first thing. The second thing is, I hear a lot of faculty who say, but why should I have to offer incentives? Shouldn't uh, the desire to learn or, um, you know, the grade in the class or whatever, or just nothing. Shouldn't, shouldn't they just come up with their own um, motivation to which I, I call nonsense because <laughs> not you calling shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. Not me calling shenanigans, me calling nonsense. Um, and I only said nonsense because I couldn't think of a non um, curse word for a second, but I'm calling yeah. it. Yeah. And, and the reason I, I say that is that every one of us, every single one of us has constantly intrinsic and extrinsic motivation at play. Those of you that become chairs of departments often do so because you're intrinsically motivated to help your department out. But the universities also reward you, right? With course releases um, or with um, leaves at the, at the end of your terms. Now they're deserved, right? They're deserved forms of, of, of rewards or incentives, but they're also part of the reason that you do it, right? You do it because, because somebody is acknowledging and recognizing your work and effort. So I think it's important to remember that you're not, um, having incentives is not you saying that students shouldn't care on their own. It's not you saying that it's your responsibility to make students care. It's you saying, I've built in a system that is going to be encouraging, supportive, and rewarding. And you should always want that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really important to keep in mind that we're not asking you to, to buy their love. Um, we're asking you to, to build a system of support that will guarantee or at least increase the potential for success. Yeah, and, and I think along with that, it's important to remember that games don't just throw extra HP at you. They don't just throw stars or whatever the incentive is at you you don't get an, a new fancy keyblade just because you're walking around and you find one in kingdom hearts um games give you incentives after you've done specific tasks and so um sometimes that task if you're playing a game like kingdom hearts like skyrim anything like uh, breath of the wild anything that's open world sometimes that task is is curiosity mm -hmm. and so sometimes you get an incentive because you made link throw a rock and so the little Korok seed guy comes out and does a funny dance for you like and and that's an extrinsic motivator right um but it is reinforcing that curiosity and also it's time-based and so those are that's kind of those Korok seeds are kind of more random but um if you're playing a game you get certain things at certain points and so you get a new keyblade or you level up your keyblade at the end of you know three levels or whatever it is and so when you're thinking about um that question of shouldn't students just want to learn on their own that extrinsic motivation is going to be there still for students but for the ones who do value the uh, or sorry the intrinsic motivation but for the ones who do value that extrinsic motivation the 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 outside 
um, incentives to keep going. It doesn't have to be every day, right? You're not showing the leaderboard every day. You're not giving out badges every day. You're saying, okay, you were the first person to reach level four medic status. Here's your badge. Um, you were the only person to do this particular research line. So you get this badge um, or you get this particular um, thing. Uh, you all, your group, got the highest score from our outside professors who came in and scored your presentations. So you get your next assignment graded first, those sorts of things. And so it's not something that has to be constant. And again, you're not buying their love with stuff necessarily. Um, you're not handing out, um, you know, you know, again, gift cards to Chili's. Um, it's things that make sense within the context of your class. And I think too, intrinsic motivation has a tendency to, to wax and wane depending on life, right? Mm -hmm. They're just sometimes you're like, I don't have, I don't have the wherewithal to, to be motivated right now, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway, because by golly, I'm going to get whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, now all I can think of is the gift card to Chili's, which I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure would personally for me be much of a motivator. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think that that's really important that, um, building both of those in and just helps students to, to feel like they can succeed even when, um, they get hit by that point in the semester that we all do, where we just can't, can't have in, anything intrinsic. Mm -hmm. So what I have loved, uh, again, many things, but what, one of the things I've loved is that so far, although we've been referencing um, video games because they're, they're an easy way to talk about games, um, we've not really talked about tech, right? Yeah. Um, you've not been like, the first thing you need to do is learn how to code, right? And once you've learned <laughs> how to code, then you can, you know, that's, that's not really even enter the equation. So we're where does technology need to fall into our thinking about game-based learning? Yeah. Um, so tech is, it, it's, when you're gamifying a classroom, tech is kind of optional depending on what you're doing. So like I said, if you're not using a leaderboard, then you don't have to put together your leaderboard PowerPoint, right? If you're not using, um, if you're not, uh, I don't know, doing leveling, if you're just using the narrative and roles, you don't have to put together, you know, a little, a little animation of level one versus level two or anything for your class. So tech is basically what you want to add to it to enhance the, I guess, visual and or interactive elements of the course, right? Um, and so it can be things like putting together a little leaderboard where each of them has a, a little logo or something and you just move the logos around on a PowerPoint for each particular student or um, each team. Uh, but it can also be things like using game systems. And so uh, I know that on T-Learn, we have the level up system uh, where you can put in conditions of your course. And so um, it can be something like a student accesses a PDF and they get two XP. Um, or something like that. And you don't have to, when you're doing things like XP and leveling or experience leveling incentives, those sorts of things, when you're mixing those things, you want to strike the balance between making it so that they're getting, they're not getting a level every day, but it's not insurmountable odds, right? And so um, I know that a lot of the pushback I get too is the idea of, well, I'm, I'm not giving them 
experience points or XP or stars or whatever the system you're using is for reading their thing. They're supposed to read their thing for homework. Um, but you can still give them XP, but it just means that you can't make it so that they get two XP for that. And it only takes five XP to get to the next level, right? So if they only get two XP for this little, um, little assignment that they're doing, then maybe it takes a thousand XP to get to level five or whatever it is, um, or whatever the next level is for you. So you wanna think about kind of how you're doing that too. So um, for Moodle, there are things like level up that lets you put in like conditions of your, of your game and of um, what they're interacting with on your course. Uh, for Canvas, for those of you who are not on our campus and have um, an actual institution-based Canvas site, you can use something called Delphinium, which is personally my favorite gamification um, software out of all of them probably. And that actually lets you on your course put together some of the things that we're, uh, we've been talking about, like your leaderboard, um, like showing them you know, how many stars they got in each particular unit or something like that, um, but also your extrinsic motivators. So when I was using it, um, there are little gift boxes um, and it's just a, a silly little animation. So when they got, you know, 300 points in the class, they could click on the gift box, it would unlock for them and they'd see a little, you know, firework <laughs> explosion or something like that, little stuff. And again, this isn't stuff that you're, since you're not giving them, you know, Xbox Gold subscriptions or Chili's gift cards, it's not anything that's going to make the students be like, yeah, um, you're not going to get, you know, the Beyonce reaction out of this. Um, but it's like little things that kind of make it more engaging and that they can interact with. The real winner for mine when using Delphinium is the avatar feature. So you have a little egg shaped guy um, and I think it starts off as pink um, and you get uh, three sets of eyes, three noses, three mouths. That's it. That's what you start off as. As you gain points, you can actually add more stuff. And so um, when I worked on this, I was teaching a pop culture course. And so I drew a little lightsaber and added that. So if they had, you know, 1500 points in the class, they could give their avatar lightsaber. Um, I think I drew the Tony Stark t-shirt with the uh, mm -hmm. arc reactor in it, uh, those sorts of things. And so they progress and they can add to their avatar. And that was a hit for my juniors and seniors in that class. Um, so again, the extrinsic motivation doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be showy, it doesn't have to be stuff, right? Um, it can be little things, but adding tech is a good way of doing that. And even if you don't have Delphinium, you can do stuff like avatars anyway, and, um, you know, give them certain things or um, have certain ways that you change maybe a class picture or something as they go along. And there are low tech uh, options for all of these too, right? Mm -hmm. um, you could you could have avatars that you put up in the classroom, right? That just, you bring it in every day and it's just a drawing and you hand them that uh, lightsaber. Um, or Yeah, or Legos or, or anything, right? And so I think, um, you know, if, if tech is where you're getting stuck, if you've been following us all along and you're like, wait a minute, I'm also gonna have to plan this tech stuff. Um, we've been playing games 
for millennia without what we define today as technology. Um, so there are plenty of ways that you can incorporate it. Uh, the great news is, is if you're on our campus, yeah, you can reach out to, to Lauren um, and you know she, she can talk to you much more uh, expansively about what tech options are readily available at Trinity. So I wanna to get to our, our last main point, which I think is just the, what's the easiest way to get started? Um, because this is a lot, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the easy places to start is to realize that um, Lauren and I have not made up much as I wish we had game-based learning, right? Like we are not <laughs> like presenting you with something that we have conjured up. And so there's nothing out there. There is so much out there. Um, historians, there's a fantastic already developed resource called Reacting to the Past mm -hmm. that will let you have everything from a unit to a full class that will have everything from light versions of role-playing where they're like um, acting out debates as though they were in the courtroom of, of the historical case to like actual ballot systems and voting so they can see what it'd be like to be in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's it's really expansive and it's already done for you. All you would have to do is figure out how to take this, this toolkit and apply it. And it, there's case studies, right? Um, case studies are not often listed as, as game-based learning um, because oftentimes it's just about um, like talking about it, but you could take a case study. Um, for example, you could take a case study about um, the coronavirus and um, cruise ships, but actually gamify it a little bit and have certain people play uh, the people who are overseeing the companies for the cruise ships and some of the people are the tourists on the cruise ships, right? And you could really easily um, build it out, but you've already got a working example because there are countless uh, in STEM case study databases already built. So one of the easiest ways to get started, I think, is to see what's already out there and mm -hmm. how you can adapt it. Absolutely. And just like uh, I know I've said this before, but remember to keep it simple. So when, when we talk about getting started, start small. Don't start with trying to fully gamify an entire course no. with everything I've talked about today. No. I've done that before. I tried that when I was oh just getting gosh. started with game-based learning. And let me tell you, it was a rough semester. Um, and so start small. Um, this can mean, okay, I, I want to gamify this full course, but all I'm going to do is the narrative and the roles, or all I'm going to do, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with just the branching. So I'm not even going to give them a narrative, just they can pick, um, you know, path A, path B, or path C. That's all I'm starting with. Um, and then as you're, as you're going, you can work through and work up to more of those things. Um, which brings me to my next point of get feedback from your students. Mm -hmm. One of the best things about running, one of the good thing, the only good things that came from trying to gamify a full course um, all at once with everything in it was that I told my students, this is the first time I've done this. So I wanna know what you hate. Mm -hmm. And they will tell you what you what they hate. Mm -hmm. um, and so getting that feedback from students of saying, hey, you know, I get it that we're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be researching technology, but it's really hard for us to find it within these specific confines of what you said our interests are for our role. Can we expand our role? Yeah, absolutely. And being flexible and being able to kind of, and this is why you start small with one or two things, because that means you can be flexible. That exactly. means 
changing or expanding a role isn't going to cause a domino effect and make everything else fall apart. Um, and so, um, but, but students will also tell you what they like. So one of the surprises from that first thing was I had gamified the, um, I gamified the class for, you know, the, they're on a space station, yada, yada. Um, but I really felt like, you know, they're, they're college students. They're not, you know, seniors, but they're college students. They don't want me to come in and like put on a persona every day and, and do, do all of that. Um, yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> they absolutely did. They're like, okay, um, this is fine if you don't want to, but we would really like you to be Commander Malone for like the whole <laughs> class rather than just like the activity part. So if you could work that into your lectures, that would be great. And I was That's like, oh God. <laughs> um, I love it. But yeah, but yeah. And so that was, that was a surprise because it was something again. And I think this goes back to choosing a narrative that really ties into your content and your course outcomes really well. When you do that, they're going to get into it. Um, some more than others, some of them won't but most of them will buy into it a little bit. Um, so start small, keep it simple. Get and when you do that, students. when you keep yeah. it small and simple and then get feedback, right? It can be more focused, right? Because if it's mm -hmm. over everything, like tell me everything that works or isn't working, um, that can be very overwhelming. If it's, mm -hmm. hey, I've added roles, what are your thoughts? You can tweak roles before you add in you know, a narrative, or if you mm -hmm. have the structure, you can tweak that before you, you get to narrative so that you're not having to change everything that you've perfectly built into this, like, um, you know, this has to work perfectly for this to work perfectly. You mm -hmm. can kind of be building um, on top of each other. And with any feedback from students, I think your point about some students are going to really get into it and others won't, you know, you have to, to learn to interpret uh, that feedback, um, both through a sort of triage system of like, what can I adjust right now currently? What do I need to save um, until the end of the semester? Um, but also keeping in mind that if, you know, half your students say they really loved the story and half of them didn't, right? Um, or I had a semester where the semester that we pivoted for the first time to the to COVID, um, students said we had we needed that group work. It was the only thing that made us feel connected. Um, this last spring, a year into the pandemic, students were like, it was the worst part because it was just one more thing on Zoom, right? So so thinking about you know keeping in mind that how to read in between the data um, mm -hmm. from your students is always important, but I think it's particularly important because game-based learning is going to elicit strong emotional responses. Um, and, and that's just really important. Yeah. And so I, I saved this one to last because it really ties back to what I've been harping on about planning ahead, which is when we're getting started with game-based learning, I think that some of the hesitation, some of the pushback and some of the uh, maybe anxiety stems from this idea that it is maybe just a gimmick or maybe just uh, edutainment, like you said, Katie. And one of the reasons for that is because we sort of apply gamification like a Band-Aid because mm -hmm. we've heard gamification helps engagement. Great, okay, let's gamify the course. But we need to be really intentional about what we're, why we're applying it, the rationale behind why we're applying it to this class specifically. And so, um, when you are thinking about um, gamifying your course, think about wh what is it 
what problem or issue are you having that you want gamification to solve or to at least address? It might not solve it entirely, but what do you want to address with gamification? So my example is the business comm class that I was teaching. Um, before, just with the standardized curriculum, they have all of these individual projects that are disjointed that have them doing different things. Um, and then they have a team project at the end right at the end and so all of a sudden they're thrown into teams that they haven't worked with for the entire semester and that was an issue for me because it was a hot mess um <laughs> and so when i thought about okay i'm going to gamify this class it was to address the fact that i want them to be working in their teams nearly constantly for the semester and yes they will still have their individual assignments but it's going to lead up to this big team report and so um and it's gonna and it's gonna continue on the narrative right so their individual assignment one of the individual assignments is a message packet so they have to write a bunch of different messages individually but with their roles they all got certain messages to write and so like the social media manager was doing like uh, a memo and then a twitter post and then you know something interactive that they had to incorporate um you know pictures and video and stuff in um and so they were putting their message packet together like that whereas like the budget manager was doing stuff with tables and that sort of thing um and so all of their roles fit into the narrative but they were all doing their own stuff but they could see how it worked within the greater team function when they were finished with it so by the time we got to the actual group project at the end they had been working with their people for the whole time and they were like okay we know how we work together we know what our roles are let's get this done one of the grossest and it's gross because it's really effective metaphors i've ever heard about what we need to be careful of right is that we don't want games to be chocolate on broccoli right <laughs> we're just like we'll just pour so i know isn't it so gross just pour some more chocolate on there and then because that's it's disgusting right but it, it also like it's disgusting because it doesn't make sense um but if your goal is i need my children to eat the broccoli um then then that's a question right how might we get our children to eat broccoli um and then the solution is definitely never going to be you know pour some chocolate on it and it, it's a similar question right uh we it's and it's a principle of design thinking right start with the question how might we and then insert whatever problem it is um have the group work feel like it's not just flung on them at the end create a better uh, sense of community amongst the students um create more engagement in this unit this topic help them to understand that the history of the past is, is the future of tomorrow whatever it might be right ask yourself that question first because whatever form of gbl you use is going to be different um mm -hmm. for that class depending on on the question that you have and i think when we're thinking about gamification too a lot of times a lot of times it this might help the people who are feeling sort of overwhelmed by the thought of gamifying a whole class. A lot of times what we want to address with gamification is very, very small part of the actual class. For me, it had it ended up having to be the entire the entire course because I was working up to something. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just really have a unit that mm -hmm. students struggle like whoa through. And so maybe don't gamify your whole class, maybe gamify that specific unit. Um, and so again, being really intentional in how we are applying this. So hopefully 
you're listening to all this and you're like, I'm really excited, a little cautious because they keep telling me to plan ahead. And also, holy cow, that was a lot, but I'm still really excited. That is great because we are actually going to be running a game-based learning institute uh, for faculty and staff, teaching staff here in the collaborative um, in the 21-22 year. So this uh, institute is going to span um, from like October to, to April mm -hmm. and We'll be providing more details about it, but it's going to give you a chance to really dig deep into the mechanics of, of what GBL would look like and then to start applying those mechanics in, in very meaningful ways um, to the classes you might want to, to GBL. But and this, this is, is specific to gamification. Part. Yes, I should say. Yeah, specific to gamification. Yeah, that's true. And and it's gamified. Mm -hmm. which is my favorite part. Yeah, so you will is. get to you will get to both be thinking about gamification and experience gamification um, as uh, you know from the the student or learner perspective. So this is going to be absolutely phenomenal. There will be more information um, forthcoming about like when to RSVP and and when the dates are and, and all that good stuff. But you should be excited <laughs> and uh, know that if this is something that interests you, we are going to be devoting uh, this whole academic year to to digging deeper into this. So since the, the Game-Based Learning Institute is really an uh, institute on gamification, uh, Lauren had the brilliant idea that we could devote our other, our next couple of podcast episodes to the other things that fall under this big umbrella. So our next episode is going to be on, Lauren? Games for learning. Yay. So we'll talk about ways that you can incorporate it. We'll dig into it a little bit deeper about what it is and how it works. Um, we hope that you check that out. In the meantime, you can always get a hold of Lauren or me through email. Um, Lauren, do you want to say anything else? Uh, no, that's it. But I hope we have inspired some people. And even if you are not coming to our institute um, or um, you know not entirely invested, not ready to take that next step yet, if you just want to talk about gamification, game-based learning, I am always up to do it. So hit us up. Thank you.